Welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. So, hello, welcome back everyone to another episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. My name is Caden Carver, and I'm back with you this week after Austin dropped some straight fire on you all in the last episode. Hopefully we can keep the knowledge flowing and also enlighten you with some more of the latest dermatology research today. This week, we will be discussing five different articles covering major topics in dermatology, including margins for melanoma resection, reducing sweat production and hyperhidrosis, measuring pain in various dermatologic conditions, language differences in the use of teledermatology services, and a syringe that may prevent back spray in intralesional injection. After this, we'll test your knowledge with microbiology, growing rashes, and dermoscopy with the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week and dermoscopy question of the week. Stick around. You're really not going to want to miss this episode. So, our first article for today was recently published in JAMA Dermatology in June of this year by Marici et al., the retrospective cohort study of 1,179 patients aimed to compare outcomes in wide versus narrow excisions in patients with T1A melanoma in difficult-to-treat areas such as the face, scalp, genitalia, acral regions such as between the toes, the peri-umbilical region, and perennial lesion, excuse me, region as well. As a reminder for those who might not know, T1A melanomas have a Breslow thickness of less than 0.8 millimeters and normally do not ulcerate. Key outcomes assessed by the study included local recurrence in melanoma-specific mortality, or MSM, between 5 and 10 millimeter excision margins. Key findings of the study included the 10-year melanoma-specific mortality, was 1.8% with a 95% confidence interval of 0.8% to 4.2% in the wide excision group or 10 millimeter excision group versus 4.2% with a 95% confidence interval of 2.2% to 7.9% in the narrow or 5 millimeter margin group. 10 year local recurrence rate was 5.7% in the wide margin group and 6.7% in the narrow margin group. Confidence interval for these was 3.9% to 8.3% and 4.7% to 9.5% respectively. 11.2% of the narrow margin group and 30.7% of the wide margin group required additional reconstructive surgery. This was significant with a p-value of less than 0.001. Specific groups that experienced worse outcomes in this study were patients with a Breslow thickness or depth of the lesion greater than 0.4 millimeters and a mitotic rate greater than 1 per millimeter squared. Both of these were associated with a worst MSM with a p-value of less than 0.001. Acral melanoma 
and lentigo maligna were also associated with a higher risk of recurrence of these lesions overall. Researchers concluded that 5 millimeter margins may be adequate for stage T1A melanoma with a need for fewer reconstructive surgeries. Patients with a Breslow thickness greater than 0.4 millimeters, acral subtypes, or lentigo melanoma subtypes may not benefit from narrow excision. Our next article was published by Fujimoto et al. in JAD, also in July of this year. The randomized placebo-controlled double-blinded phase 3 study with an N of 284 aimed to evaluate the efficacy of 20% oxybutynin hydrochloride lotion in reducing palmar sweat volume in patients with primary palmar hyperhidrosis or PPHH. As a quick review, primary palmar hyperhidrosis is a disorder characterized by excessive sweating in the palms, likely due to an overactive sympathetic nervous system, which then goes to stimulate the eccrine sweat glands. Common treatments for PPHH include topical aluminum chloride, iontophoresis, Botox injections, sympathectomy, anticholinergics, as well as topical oxybutynin. Um, Topical oxybutynin has been shown or utilized to treat PPHH, although the previous evidence was limited. In the current study, subjects applied 500 microliters of 20% oxybutynin hydrochloride to the palmar surface of both hands once daily for four weeks and then were compared to placebo. Key findings of the study included patients responded to therapy and response was defined as a reduction in minimum palmar sweat production of greater than or equal to 50% from baseline 52.8% of the time compared to the OH lotion or sorry in the OH lotion compared to 28.5% in patients just receiving placebo therapy. This difference was significant with a p-value of 0.001. Percent change in sweat volume significantly improved by 48.6% in the oxybutynin hydrochloride lotion compared to 26.6% in the placebo group. This was also significant statistically. Absolute change in sweat volume was statistically significantly greater. It's a tongue twister with a change of 45% in the oxybutynin hydrochloride lotion compared to 23% in placebo. Additionally, improvement in hyperhidrosis disease severity score was significantly greater for 20% of the oxybutynin hydrochloride lotion group than placebo. Limitations of this study include a limited treatment length It was relatively short at only four weeks, which kind of somewhat limits the conclusions that can be drawn from the study. The key point to take away from this article is that topical 20% oxybutynin hydrochloride lotion has demonstrated effectiveness as a potential treatment of PPHH. The third article we have for you today comes to us from the BJD, British Journal of Dermatology, 
and was published by Hassan et al. in December 2022. This systematic review investigated clinical pain measurement techniques across randomized controlled trials of various painful skin conditions. Following their review, the authors found that 68% of RCTs use a numerical rating scale, or the VAS, 77% of RCTs did not specify the time window when pain occurred, and only 33% of studies asked about both the average pain level and the maximum pain level experienced by patients. Limitations for this study include that different diseases have different pain patterns and the, the ability of a single study to examine all the existing pain scales is limited. This study does highlight the fact that pain is complicated. For physicians to best treat disease and to ensure best patient outcomes, evaluating pain systematically and having uniform pain scales is key. The fourth article we will discuss here today comes to us from Pediatric Dermatology and was published by Zatcher et al. in June of this year. This retrospective review of 3,027 pediatric patients aimed to evaluate the association between primary language and utilization of teledermatology services. As you all know, the COVID-19 pandemic really shifted the landscape of how healthcare is provided and can be provided. Um, and some may argue that this is good, and some may argue that it's bad. But overall, telemedicine is becoming more prevalent, and overall is a useful but sometimes controversial tool. After conducting the study, researchers found that out of all patients, 696 pediatric patients had a telemedicine visit, and that's out of the total of 3,027 pediatric patients. Patients in this study whose primary language was one other than English utilized teledermatology 12.7% of the time compared to 17.1% of the time in pediatric patients where English was the primary language. This difference was significant with a p-value less than 0.001. Additionally, patients utilizing teledermatology were older at 10.26 years of age compared to those not using teledermatology at 9.22 years of age. This was also significant with a p-value less than 0.001. There were no significant differences in geographic area of residence, ethnicity, race, or insurance type among those seen in person versus those patients utilizing teledermatology. Key takeaways from this study are that language modifications may be necessary to make teledermatology more accessible to those with a primary language other than English. Now, for this week's Innovations article, this article comes to us from Pei and Lu and was published in JAD Online. After investigating backspray from intralesional injections, Researchers determined that a large volume syringe, greater than or equal to 20 milliliters, as an encasing for the common barrel syringe, may physically block backspray. To do this, the tip of the large volume syringe was cut 
and removed using a heated scalpel blade so that the smaller syringe could be inserted into the shielding syringe barrel. Then the larger syringe was kind of applied to the site of injection and it formed a shield around the smaller syringe as the physician was injecting the lesion um, intralesionally. During this study, researchers noted that cutting the large barrel at a 60 degree angle allowed for a larger surgical area to be covered and also enhanced protection from the back spray. Takeaways from the study include that the use of a large barrel syringe may be effective at preventing back spray when performing intralesional injection. That's pretty cool, something to keep in mind for sure. So, alright, now that your minds are all fired up with that hot off the press research, it's time to test your knowledge with this week's New England Journal of Medicine question. Get ready for an itchy one. This week, we have a 38-year-old man presenting with a nine-month history of a mildly itchy rash in his groin. The rash had previously been diagnosed as tinea cruris, but had not improved with topical antifungal treatment. On physical exam, well-circumscribed reddish-brown plaques were visualized in the left inguinal fold when the patient elevated his genitals. No scaling or satellite lesions were present. A KOH prep of the skin scrapings was negative. Under a Woods lamp, the rash showed coral red fluorescence. What is the most likely causative organism? Not diagnosis, although you probably have to make your diagnosis first to think about which organism causes that. But let's give you some choices. So is it A, Candida albicans, B, Crinibacterium minutissimum, C, Malassezia furfur, D, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, or E, Trichophyton mentagraphites. Give you a couple seconds to think. And the answer is Crinibacterium minutissimum, B, and so basically we've all been taught about scaly fungal infections, you know, the, all the tinias, tinea corporis, curris, capitis, etc. However, erythrasma, which is the diagnosis in the vignette, is less commonly discussed. So we will go ahead and discuss that here. Erythrasma is caused by the bacterium Carinibacterium minutissimum, which is a gram-positive filamentous rod commonly occurs in the skin folds, aka the growing and axilla regions, and it presents commonly as a light red-pink um, at first, and then later on moves to a brown patch appearance, and this is associated with a, skin, a thin scale. In the toe webs, you should suspect Carinibacterium when you see asymptomatic fissuring with maceration. What do you do if you if you excuse me if you suspect erythrasma, as demonstrated by this case, gotta scrape it. So get the Woods lamp out, do a KOH scraping, and Carinibacterium in erythrasma fluoresces coral red. It's a buzzword, 
and this coral red fluorescence is due to the coproporphyrin 3 produced by Carinibacterium minutissimum. Um, you can treat erythrasma with antibacterial topicals such as topical clindamycin, erythromycin, or mepiracin. Oral medications for widespread or refractory disease include oral erythromycin, oral chlorithromycin, and oral tetracyclines. Let's talk about these other answers here. So, A, candida albicans. If you had um, an intertrigo with candida, you would see satellite lesions. Those are commonly associated with your classic C. albicans or intertrigo infection. Um, candida can cause a multitude of skin conditions. The most common of which you will see is intertrigo, like we talked about, with those beefy red papules and plaques, with the classic satellite pustules and papules, as well as erosions. Um, Malassezia furfur, that's going to be your cause of tinea versicolor. It's also another common condition where patients present with hyper or hypopigmented, finely scaling circular oval macules or patches in a sebaceous distribution, aka commonly on the scalp, face, neck, upper chest, and back. It's also caused by the transformation of the yeast form, Malassezia furfur, which does occur in the normal skin flora, to the filamentous or hyphal form. And azelaic acid, one of the byproducts of this yeast, inhibits melanocytes, leading to hypopigmentation that is seen with the condition. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, this gram-negative rod, does cause several skin conditions, including green nail syndrome, pseudomonial, pseudomonal pyoderma, otitis externa, pseudomonal folliculitis, also known as hot tub folliculitis, Pseudomonas hot foot syndrome, and ecthyma gangrenosum. It's not known to cause a slightly scaling brown patch in the intertriginous region, making a pseudomonas infection less likely here. Trichophyton mentagrophytes. Trichophyton species do cause superficial fungal infections, i.e. tinea corporis, tinea cruris, tinea capitis, etc., Trichophyton mentagrophytes specifically is known for causing carrion, which is an inflammatory pustular type of tinea capitis. With this, you'd see white superficial onychomycosis as well as vesicular bolus tinea pedis. So, that is your New England Journal of Medicine question of the week. Hopefully, you learned something there. It's definitely some good information. Now, moving on to our dermoscopy question for the week. Again, it's a little bit tough since this is a podcast form and you can't see the dermoscopy image here, but it's a good test of my description abilities as well as your envisioning abilities. So, let's do our best. A patient presents to clinic with a flesh-colored, slightly exophytic papule in the anogenital area. On dermoscopy, you note globular white structures centered by vessels. What is the most likely causative agent? Again, try to trick you here. So first make your diagnosis and then hopefully the agent will kind of speak for itself. Your choices are Sporothrix shankii, 
Treponema pallidum, Molluscum contagiosum, or human papillomavirus. All right, try to envision that lesion in your head. So the answer to this one is going to be D, human papillomavirus, or HPV. So anogenital warts, also known as condyloma acuminata, are caused by infection with HPV 6 and 11. Clinically, these lesions are transmitted through contact with infected skin. Under dermoscopy, as in the photo, photo above, anogenital warts appear as globular white structures centered by vessels. There are three main patterns of anogenital wart. These include the mosaic pattern, which is globular, flat or rounded structures within the lesion which fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, knob-like, which are grouped knobby pro uh, projections, or finger-like, which are grouped elongated finger-like projections similar in diameter but of varying lengths. The description provided depicts the mosaic type of HPV lesion. Studies have shown that more flattened genital warts tend to exhibit mosaic patterns, while more raised lesions frequently present like knob and finger-like pattern under dermoscopy. A variety of vascular configurations can be found in genital warts. For our incorrect answer explanations, Sporothrix shankii is a dimorphic fungus which causes sporotrichosis, which is a mycosis endemic to tropical areas. It's also commonly known as rose gardener's disease and is associated with um, pick, or pricks excuse me, from rose thorns. So in questions, you'll often see it associated with a patient who has recently done some gardening. Sporotrichosis traditionally causes a pattern of sporotrichoid spread, and that's basically the formation of nodules in and along the draining lymphatic lines. Treponema pallidum is a spirochete responsible for syphilis. It classically produces a painless chancre or ulcerated lesion with an indurated edge. The spirochetes from lesions can be visualized under dark fuel field microscopy. Molluscum contagiosum is a skin condition caused by the molluscum contagiosum virus, which is an envelope DNA pox virus. The virus causes small raised tan to red papules with a classically described umbilicated central crater. They are highly associated with atopic dermatitis and immunocompromised states, especially HIV. Alright, so that's all we have for you this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hopefully you were able to learn something, whether it was from the research discussed or from the uh, multiple questions that we had. And hopefully we see you again on the next episode. So until then, take care, best of luck with whatever you're doing, and we'll see you soon. As we wrap up, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the rest of the Skin Depth team, including our content writers. They really put in a lot of work to making the newsletter uh, twice monthly, and we appreciate all their hard work. Our website teams and social media teams have also been putting in a lot of work 
So if you're interested, go ahead and check out our website at skindepthderm.com as well as our social media pages. Um, we are present on all the major platforms, so go ahead and give us a follow for some more great content like this. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.